Today we're talking about the Gospels, uh, the heart of our faith, and how to interpret those four letters, uh, four books that often put us in a conundrum. So if you feel like you have mastered, if you feel like you've mastered Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then this class is not for you. If you feel like you need a little bit of help, then maybe this will be a little bit helpful. Uh, it has helped me in preparation. So let's pray together and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those synoptic Gospels that give us those three so similar but so richly accentuated with specificity uh, in each one that the other doesn't contain. Thank you for those looks at our Redeemer, and we pray that you would help us to understand. I'm confounded by many passages in the Gospels. Uh, and some others are just so straightforward and clear that I can understand them, but we want help to be able to believe and obey what is so plain. Thank you for the master teacher using, wielding everything, uh, intellect, illustration, metaphors, other people, just the master teacher. Thank you for Jesus and the way he was able to wield the, written word to explain you and just in his life and ministry reveal you and then for the gospel of john this this look at unparalleled magnificence deity dazzling beauty saving sufficiency full of grace and truth lord thank you for matthew mark luke and john and we pray that we would not drift far from the teachings of our rabbi that we would live close to the master that like three and a half years of discipleship with Jesus for the 12 who walked with him every day that we would be like that listening to his words obeying his instruction even memorizing uh, portions of it that you guide us to do so we commit this class session to you we pray that we would understand how to study the gospels a little bit better than we did when we walked in we pray this in Jesus name amen Okay, so uh, you guys know our course guide is this book, and uh, I've really enjoyed this. This next several uh, sessions we'll have, we're going to do one next week, even though it's the fourth Sunday, because we skipped one a while back, and it's on the book of Acts, and I didn't want to wait till after the summer. Uh, but next Sunday ends our May grow like this, but just come right here at the same time, and a bunch of good things will happen, uh, like a parenting and emotions seminar, June and July. And the fourth Sunday of those months, we'll have some special guests that come in and talk to us about other good ministry things uh, that would be good for us to know about and pray about. So just keep coming. But then this class will resume August through November. And I wanted to get the Gospels and Acts in before the break. So that's the plan. So today's the Gospels, and there's four things that we want to think about in studying the Gospels. What are they? How should we read them? What about the various literary forms? Like Gospels the broad, but within the Gospels, there's some different styles of literature. What are they? It'd be good just as you're reading through to be like, oh, yeah, that just changed. And then a conclusion with a, we're going to do an assignment together, hopefully, from the Gospel of Matthew, I think. So first, I'm just give some introductory thoughts. Uh, Obviously, the Gospels are precious to all Christians because at the very center of our faith stands a person, Jesus Christ, 
Uh, I try to teach every new believer and every maturing believer what I wish I would have seen way earlier than I saw it. Um, I teach a one-week intensive every September in the beautiful Dearborn Canyon of Montana. Hopefully Jason and Byron will go with me this year, so uh, I'm working on that. I've taken both their boys, so their dad's got to get on the train. Um, but I teach a Christ-centered hermeneutic of the Old Testament. And all day, every day, it's just a sweet class. Nathan Kaiser's been there with me. Um, I wish I would have seen that earlier. And the reason I'm saying that to you now, if you feel like you're not good at studying your Bible, the best advice I could give is start in the middle. What did Jesus have to say about the rest of the book? We are unashamedly Christians. We start with Christ unashamedly. If you've never read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and keep going, but you've also never read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, start there. That would be my richest, most earnest encouragement to you. And you don't feel, have to feel like you have mastered them. You will never arrive there. But there's a way Jesus teaches and talks about the rest of Scripture that I wish would have shaped me earlier. And I'm still growing in that. But, um, yeah, we start with Christ unashamedly. And he's the center of our faith, so get to know him and what he said. Um, old uh, first century rabbinical situations when a rabbi invited someone to follow him as his protege, Paul, Gamaliel, Jesus, the disciples. Um, I mean, Google this sometime. How many hours did students spend with a first century rabbi? Jesus is our rabbi. Jesus is our teacher. Spend a lot of time with Jesus. Uh, page 269 of the book we're using says, one thing Jesus never did was publish his autobiography. Without a book from Jesus himself, how do we know anything about him? We certainly have enough information about Jesus from sources outside of the New Testament to know that he really existed. But our most direct witness to Jesus comes from the four canonical gospels. Canon is the Bible. Canonical, the, the gospels in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These four books comprise almost half of the New Testament in terms of word count. Four books, almost half the New Testament. In these books, the first followers of Jesus give us something similar to a biography of Jesus. In this week's study, we will learn two main things. Number one, we'll answer the question, what are the Gospels? Specifically, what kind of story did the Gospel writers intend to tell us? Why do they not tell us about his teenage years? Why do these four books not always follow the same chronological sequence? We need to understand as much as possible about the genre of gospel in order to read the gospels as they're intended. And then second, how to interpret the gospels. How do we understand the intended meaning and apply it to our lives? So the first thing is what are the gospels? Page 270, the authors write the term gospel translates the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. So we say the gospel of Mark. If you lived in Jerusalem, you would have heard the good news of Mark. That's what gospel means. 
And when you read the Gospels, uh, instead of being primarily frustrated that you're having a hard time understand, uh, understanding them, primarily this thing, God thinks this is good news about Jesus the Christ. That's the way the Gospel of Mark begins. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's Mark 1.1. 1, 1. To a first century ear, it would sound like the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Gospels are, I, w- I want to point to two things. Uh, they are stories. That's pretty self-evident. The Gospels, like all of their stories, draw us into the narrative. There's no more fascinating book on the planet. You may be a big Lord of the Rings or C.S. Lewis or somebody else. You may love Tolkien or whoever. Nothing is more fascinating than this book. And all of those great writers of, of history borrow from sanctified imagination to say things that they write about that are so enthralling. But what kind of stories are the four Gospels? Justin Martyr, you may have heard of his name, lived from AD 100 to AD 165. In his first apology, he wrote this. Um, or he characterizes the Gospels this way. They are the memoirs of the apostles. So if you could read their diary about Jesus that was also inspired by the Holy Spirit, think of them that way as you read them. You're looking through Mark's eyes at Jesus. You're looking through John's eyes at Jesus. So it's like their memoirs of him. But as we read the Gospels, we can see that they are different than modern biographies. First, they don't cover the whole life of Jesus. They just jump from his birth to his public ministry. Matthew and Luke actually include his birth. But, yeah, the gospel, other gospel writers just start at his public ministry, Gospel of Mark. Often, the gospel writers arrange Jesus' actions topically rather than chronologically. And so you feel like you're kind of jumping around. Are we in year one of his public ministry or year three of his public ministry? Well, sometimes the writers will take a topic and insert it, not in chronological order, but thematically. So Matthew and Luke switch the order, for example, of the second and third temptations of Jesus. Remember when Satan tempted Jesus? Matthew and Luke switch the order of the second and third. Does that mean one of them got them wrong? Or is it maybe they had a purpose? If so, what purpose might they have had? Well, um, I'll come back to that. A larger scale example than a specific temptation order getting reversed. The synoptic gospels, by the way, synoptic, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar. Sin means together. Optic means to see them. You can see them together. They have slight variations in their presentation of the order of different events. All four of them, instead of being like a modern biography, I mean, we've talked about this a lot at Grace Church because I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. All four of them devote a disproportionate amount of material to seven days of Jesus' life, the last week of his life leading up to the cross. Like half of the Gospel of Mark is about seven days. Half of the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 12, is about seven days. Very little analysis of the other character's psyche is given to us. We can put some things together, like Peter was prone to spout off at the mouth, right? But you don't get a lot of that. There's not a lot of character development of other significant figures like we might read in other 
you know, biographical sketches of somebody. The Gospels are a form of biography, but they're different from the modern form of biography. The Gospels are four versions of the one story of Jesus. So page 272 of the book says this. It seems obvious that what we have in the four Gospels is not the result of four people following Jesus around with a tape recorder or a video camera. Right? It's not that. John explains that he and others could not tell all that there was to say about Jesus. John 21:25. So they carefully selected material that they did include and then they must have decided not to include a lot of other material that could have come to their mind. Jesus' longest speeches, sermons, Matthew 5 to 7, can be read in a few minutes. The whole Sermon on the Mount, longest speech of Jesus, unbroken. You can read it in a few minutes. But he almost certainly spoke for hours. We just have a little piece of it. Page 272 says, There was simply not enough time and not enough scroll space to tell the whole story. As a result, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, the gospel writers chose what to include and what to omit, omit, as well as how to arrange it in a way that effectively communicated the good news to their contemporaries. So, uh, the gospel writers felt free to paraphrase or summarize what Jesus said and to arrange the event, the events according to a particular theme rather than according to a strict chronological sequence. Luke explains in his introduction, Luke 1, 1 to 4, that he went around and did research. You know, Luke was not one of the 12 that followed Jesus as a disciple. So he went around and interviewed people, did careful inquiries, a lot of research and study, and then he compiled uh, his events in a certain order. He says that in Luke 1, 1 to 4. Um, so why might the second and third temptation, to go back to that, be in different orders in Matthew and Luke? Well, Matthew's key theme, key word of Matthew is fulfilled. Fulfilled, 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 fulfilled. You're going to run over that. You're going to get run over by that a bunch of times. It's showing that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He's the king of the kingdom. So he's David's son in chapter 1 the king's son, and then all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him in chapter 28. He's the king of the universe. So the kingdom of God is the big theme. His very first sermon in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 4, 17, I think, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, period. That's his first sermon. So the kingdom of God is the big theme. Well, Matthew ends his temptation narrative with Satan's attack on his kingliness putting it last. Bow down to me. I'll give you the whole world. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus didn't need Satan to give him anything. He was already the king. Luke puts Jesus' temptation to throw yourself down from the temple last. Why? Maybe because Luke's whole focus is Jerusalem-centered. Everything moves toward Jerusalem in Luke and everything moves from Jerusalem and Acts. And those were one book to begin with. So there could be reasons that are not always, oh, this must be a mistake. See, the Bible's not true. See, these aren't in the same order. Maybe, maybe there are some other reasons. Well, I got more notes, but that's slide number three of 70. So let's hurry up. Uh, what are the Gospels? They are stories that are intentionally selected, theologically aimed, and Christ-centered. Selected material for a purpose. Number two, how should we read them? 
I thought this was a good quote from page 273. Our method of reading the Gospels must respect the means God used to inspire them in the first place. And part of my OCD, I don't know why Canva capitalizes every letter I, every letter I, but it's my OCD and I don't like it, but it just does it. All right. We have to respect how God intended these four books to be written as we try to interpret them. So, how should we read them? What does the small story tell us about Jesus? Question we should ask. And what is the gospel writer trying to say to his readers by the way he puts the smaller stories together? You know, the gospels, 21 chapters in John, 28 chapters in Matthew, they're not just haphazard, spontaneous insertions of some recollection the writer had about Jesus. They're very ordered. Like, I hope you're starting, I'm starting to see more than I ever have. The Psalms are also that way. I hope you're starting to see they're not just 150 haphazard, random, ordered Psalms. So also the Gospels. So how does the small story connect to the stories right around it? For example, most of the stories, let's just take kind of three in a row. There's episode one, episode two, episode three. And sometimes if we don't read all three of the episodes in sequence, we might not see the connection. But usually there's some theme that runs through all of them. And if we'll start to look at them, especially if we're meditating on the middle one, look what happened before, look what happened after, and see if there's some thread in that. Here's an example. Luke chapter 10. Uh, I'm going to come up for air. Let's have, do you, would you be willing to be a reader? Yeah, just read it loud and clear as you can. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. It's a familiar passage. It's okay not to have it watertight. Okay, we're not grading anybody. What's a big principle you think Luke might have been wanting us to get out of this? Great. This is exactly what the book said. Doing good things for God can sometimes cause us to miss God himself. Right? Worship is more important than a lot of other really good things. Good things can actually distract us from best things. Not to suggest we should never eat or prepare a meal for a guest. Right? That would be a bad interpretation of this passage. That's also a very good and godly thing to do. Be very hospitable. But there are times when that can usurp the most important. All right? So... Theodore Menad, in that little Looking Unto Jesus booklet, we force-feed every Grace Church person uh, unashamedly, said it's possible to have the hands full and the heart empty. Right? That's a problem. And we don't want to be that person. We want to have a real love relationship with Jesus. So I think that's a good shot at the main principle. Well, what comes right before that? In Luke 10, 25-27, this is their summary of that passage. Love for one's neighbor should transcend all human boundaries 
such as nationality, race, religion, or economic status. So if that's right, we don't have time to go read the passage and analyze. If that's right, and if the second one, doing good things can sometimes get in the way of meeting with God, then Luke 11, the passage right after it, they would summarize, Jesus teaches us how to communicate with God through prayer, parables on prayer, and exhortation to pray. Well, it may not be immediately obvious to you. In fact, it probably will not be. Nobody's, like, naturally good at this. But if you sit with the Lord, you sit with the passage, you ask a lot of questions, is there any connection between these? What might that connection be? Other people may see other things, but this is the way the authors of our our book put it. Relationships are the common theme. So, neighbor, Jesus, God, the Father in prayer. Relationships are the common theme. In the first story, let's see if this will work. There you go. In the first story, we are told that followers of Jesus should be loving neighbors to people in need. In the second story, we're taught that listening to Jesus should take priority over religious activity. Finally, Luke emphasizes our relationship to God. Followers of Jesus need to know how to relate to their neighbors, service, their Lord, devotion, and to their Father in prayer relating to all the people and divine among us. Page 275 of the book said, we cannot be 100% certain that we've perfectly captured Luke's intention here and different readers may see different connections. So don't force anything, but do try to stick with the main idea of each of the stories and see if there's a common thread. And as you start to see things like that that you can demonstrate are from the passage, you're going to get new, fresh insights into the heart of God. So keep asking, what is taught in each story? And then, what is taught by the way that the stories and episodes are linked together? Make sense? All right, so that's one thing. How to read individual stories, and that's how to read a series of stories. Well, I want to say something about each one of those quickly before we go to our next point. Three principles for reading individual stories, and I've kind of wordsmithed the way they put it. Ask standard questions. Talk to your Bible a lot. Who, what, when, where, why, how. Just ask questions. Start to gain data inductively. What is in this passage? Look for interpretive instructions from the author. The gospel writers want us to understand what they wrote, even if we're having a quandary. And oftentimes they'll drop something in at the beginning. Like, Jesus told this parable so that people would not trust in themselves that they're righteous. And then tells the parable. Why did he tell it? So people wouldn't trust in themselves that they're righteous, right? So look for some of those. There are clues in the story's introduction. Here's some passages where that's the case. Ben puts all these slides, by the way, on uh, show notes of a podcast. So you can click on any one of these slides. You don't have to take any notes. Or sometimes in the body of the story, Mark 7. There's a clue about what it's about. And then third, take special note if anything's repeated. This is one of our basic Bible interpretation uh, tools, repetition. Theological points are often emphasized in the Gospels. John 15, abide, abide, abide. Matthew 23, woe, condemnation, judgment. Clearly, there's a theme moving through those passages. All right, so that's individual stories. What about a series Look for connections between the two stories. 
like patterns and logical connections, you can read this. How are the episodes joined together? Like what word is in the middle of them? Like that or unlike that? Are there similarities or contrast? How does Jesus respond? What does he actually say to the people? That'll help you draw some connections between one story and the next one that I believe they wrote on purpose in a certain order so that we should see some of those connections. So how should we read the Gospels? Here's another example. If we're reading the middle passage, Luke 15, 8 through 10, then let me actually just put it all up there. Luke 1 to 7 is about the lost sheep. 8 to 10 about the lost coin. 11 to 32 about the lost son. What do you think the point is? <laughs> right? uh, Jesus sees the individual little bitty thing that almost nobody else notices. And he cares. And so one of the most important things to remember when we're seeking to apply truths from these stories is that we should always keep the larger context in view. If you just read the middle passage, the Lord would bless you. That's a fantastic passage to meditate on, memorize, spend a lot of time there. The Lord will bless you. But if you see it in connection to the one right before and right after, you'll start to see something bigger about the heart of God that's always true. Okay? I do think, by the way, uh, in light of Tim Keller's transition to glory, I think uh, the Lord used him to show a whole generation the actual point of that passage. Most of us preached it as the prodigal son. I totally think it's about the older brother. And Keller was used mightily of the Lord to help me and a couple hundred thousand other people see that. All right, special literary forms in the Gospels is our third and final thing before we try to do a little exercise. The Gospels have... They're not one animal. They have different types of literature, genres within them. Some are narrative. Some are parable. We're going to walk through those. Page 282 says, Jesus conveyed his message through a wide array of literary forms and techniques. How about cut off your hand, pluck out your eye? Okay. that that to be taken literally so here's some examples exaggeration now there's a very uh, sacrilegious way to say that the Bible is filled with exaggeration I'm not talking about sacrilege how about Luke 14 two verses verse 25 and 26 Now, large crowds were going along with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not, what's the word? Hate Hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Okay? Page 283 says in our book, When you see exaggeration in the Gospels, do not force a literal interpretation or you will miss the real meaning of the passage. Imagine the awful implications of thinking that if you tear the eye out of your head, you will no longer commit the sin of lust. How disappointed must the person be who wakes up blind and still has a lustful heart? So 
Jesus meant what he said, and he said it the way he meant it, but it's not all to be interpreted exactly the same way. Right? So exaggeration or some other word you might want to call it. Metaphor and simile. Uh, you guys look great, but the sun's out today. It's a little brighter than you right now, to my eyes. But Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Uh, but Ben turns lights off on us right now. I don't think you're going to glow. So what does that mean? Metaphors, comparisons, they're sometimes just implicit. You can intuit what Jesus means without even having to do the arduous work of, is this a simile? Is this a metaphor? It just, we speak this way. Jesus did too. The Gospels are filled with both of these. He is the bread of the world. You should be wise as serpents. Jesus did long to gather Jerusalem under his arms like a hen gathers her chicks. But did he actually want them to just flock around him like that? And Okay, so there's metaphors and simile. Narrative irony. Page 284 says, Narrative irony is grounded in the principle of contrast. Contrast between what you expected and what actually happens. So here's an example. Mark chapter 4 and 5. The uncontrollable, demon-possessed man has been restored to his right mind. While the demon-possessed pigs, which would have been an appalling combination for Jews, pigs and demon-possessed, returned to the sea. But what happened right before that? That same sea was uncontrollable with the storm that was on it. So the Savior over creation, souls, creatures, showing up, and just making everything right everywhere. The kingdom has broken in. The end has already begun. The new age has dawned. The king of the kingdom is actually here. So some of those ironies you'll pick up on if, you, if we read all of those stories, the storm, the demoniac, the pigs, all in sequence. Rhetorical questions. Jesus uses this a lot. Matthew 5.46. If you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Do you think he wanted people to, like, teach him a lesson? No, that's rhetorical. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Does he want you to give him a dissertation on how that helps? No, that's rhetoric. That's rhetorical. He uses a lot of these rhetorical questions. They're designed to make a point rather than to retrieve an answer. Parallelism. Um. There's this all over the New Testament, at the Old. It's all over the Bible. When a relationship is established between two or more lines, so good tree, good fruit, bad fruit, tree, bad fruit. A good man, Matthew 12, 35, brings good things out of the good that's stored up in him. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil that's stored up in him. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or the tree bad and its fruit bad. That's parallelism. And then, obviously, parables. It's one of Jesus' very favorite ways of teaching. Pop quiz. Did Jesus speak in parables so that more people or less people would understand what he was saying? Shockingly less. He said in the Gospels, to them I speak in parables, but to you, disciples, I speak plainly. And then he quotes Isaiah, so that seeing they won't see and hearing they won't hear and they won't understand. And repent. That's what he said. 
So don't think, oh, well, this is a nice little story that helps me understand. Pray, Lord, help me understand. These stories have two levels of meaning. Certainly the details in the story represent something else. The lost son story. The father represents not just a human dad, but God the father. It's sometimes difficult to know how many details in a story do stand for something. And church history has gone all over the map on what to do with parables. And some of our, uh, some of my biggest uh, people I admire the most in church history, I think went bonkers on parables. Allegory, uh, if you read Augustine on the Good Samaritan, every single detail is tied to something in his contemporary cultural situation. And he says it like, thus saith the Lord. Like, this is the only way anybody could ever understand this. I'm like, I don't think so, brother. <laughs> but, um, a lot of people allegorize the parables. So I think we should reject that. But we also should reject uh, Duvall and Hayes say the one point approach. That's also inadequate. Maybe, maybe there are multiple meanings here that we can glean and apply. So there's some things to think about on special literary forms in the Gospels. And here's our conclusion. <clears throat> God chose to give us four accounts of the good news of Jesus Christ. He wants you to see the Savior, same one, from different angles, through different eyes. To have four vantage points of the one Messiah. Read and reread the Gospels. If you're a listener, listen to the Gospels. Do it on repeat. Set yourself a plan, a schedule. Clive said to me, never drift far from the Gospels. Just be close to the Gospels. One of the synoptics, Lord willing, will be our sermon series. We have sketched a possible plan of every single Sunday sermon text through 2026. Uh, it's Judges, Ephesians, and Matthew. Uh, maybe. We'll see if the Lord keeps us on that path. But every one of those books has been broken down into complete thoughts with a sermon title and a text. Um, because we just did, uh, just finished the Gospel of John, but Matthew's coming before we get to 62 of the other options that are also really good that we could have gone through. Just stay close to the Gospels. Page 288 says it's important to remember to realize that we're dealing with Christological biography. Stories about Jesus for a particular purpose. John tells us straight up why he wrote his gospel. Why did he write it? That you would believe. Yes, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you would have life in his name. Every passage in the book, carefully selected, carefully arranged for that goal. He wants you, when you read this passage, but when you read this series of stories, he wants you to do that. That's a Christological biography. He, they're, they're meant to do something to us. So uh, the writers close this way in their chapter. We close this chapter with gratitude that we have the good news of Jesus written down so that we may pick up the book at any time and read and apply it. As we grasp God's word, we also feel God taking hold of us and using us to bring glory to his name through his son. So I'm going to say it again. Read 
and reread the Gospels. Uh, we are a little presumptuous to think the first time we ever read it, we're going to have a rock-solid understanding. Over time, just keep plowing around the stump. Just plow around it. Just keep plowing around it. And eventually it'll get loose and it'll be gone and you'll just be able to plow straight ahead. You'll understand. Okay. Um, I don't, we don't have time for this. This is what we would have done. These are three sequential stories. This one. Uh, yeah, let's start with this one. He's coming back at a time you do not expect. Okay, that's explicitly stated in verse 44. Here, obedient and disobedient slaves will receive drastically different eternities. One group will be in charge of everything. You're going to judge the angels, Paul wrote. The other group will be cut in pieces with hypocrites where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's coming back soon to drastically different outcomes. <clears throat> the final one, foolish living without readiness for Christ leads to eternal forsakenness by Jesus. The ten virgins, five had oil, five didn't. Five were foolish, five were prudent. Jesus came back when the five foolish were away buying more oil that they had squandered. And when they come back, they say, hey, don't forget us. And he said to them, one of the three times he said this, I never knew you. I don't know who you are. You looked full of the Spirit. I think the oil represents the Spirit. But when Jesus came, you, you proved not to be. And so maybe there's some connection here. If so, what would go in the big box at the bottom? You could put it another way. I think there might be more than this, but there's at least this. Christ is returning. And because these passages are in this order, in this book, I should live my life, Jordan Thomas should live his life right now with the end in view. And it is totally foolish to live one day of your life like Jesus is not coming back. Don't, Jonathan Edwards said, be it resolved in his resolutions, to not be doing anything that I wish I would not have been upon the moment of Jesus' return. That's consistent with this passage. If you live like he's not coming back, I love you enough to say Jesus thinks that's very foolish way to live. Well, you can't get all of that without the sequence of those three passages. Questions or comments or additions that you precious people have from your journey in the Gospels? Yeah, um, the canon, canonized, I may use canonical or canonized or something. The canon is the Bible, not light a fuse, boom, not that kind of canon. Uh, big ball of lead flying through the sky, not that. But the canon, same spelling, is the whole Bible. And for something to be canonical, that means it's one of the books of the Bible. And your 66 books are the canon. Any other questions or comments or additions? This is the heart of our faith, friends.
podcast? Is this a podcast or does it just go to the podcast? You can Tell everybody how to find all the slides from all the lessons. So when you open up an episode of the podcast, you're going to find it there. I'm sure now have a link to the website that has all the So this grow will be a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So our whole previous uh, lesson on systematic theology, you could go look at all those slides because I know you're just dying to do it. And uh, <laughs> it's a separate podcast from our sermons. If you go to gcnfs.com slash podcasts, you'll find yeah. that. Or you can look, look for pro. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, it's not the sermons. It's not more about history. It's not Yep. Grace Church Memphis slash podcast and... Thank you, Ben, for doing that. He has faithfully done that for so many years. Um, Luke takes you to Jerusalem. Acts takes you from Jerusalem. That's what we'll talk about next Sunday, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word written. Thank you for the word incarnate and the special coalescing of those two truths in the four Gospels that tell us in your written word about your flesh and blood word, Logos, your son, our savior. We want to know him more. We're sorry for how little our appetite is for him, how willing we are to go so long without hearing his voice and sitting at his feet as our rabbi. We, uh, we're ashamed that we don't know him uh, like we could with what is available to us in the deposit of your word written. So help us to give attention to the life and teachings of our Savior and to know his voice and to follow him. Help us to understand the Gospels and let that understanding shape the way we understand the rest of the whole Bible and our life and our eternity. Thank you for these precious people. Be preparing our hearts. We continue to ask as we transition to our gathered worship time, be honored. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.